0: This is Cybersound, your simplified and fundamentals-focused source for all things cybersecurity, with your hosts, Jason Poufal and Matt Fusaro.
1: Welcome to Cybersound. I'm your host, Jason poofall joined today by Matt Fusaro uh, and Randy Parkman, who is the VP of Threat Hunting and Counterintelligence at Binary Defense. Thanks for joining, Randy. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. So I think Today we want to spend a little bit of time on uh, how sort of binary defense really frankly differentiates themselves in their in their SOC uh by sort, sort of evaluating and, and sort of and testing and and triaging your emerging threats right so all the work that you do uh, kind of ahead of time to make sure that the data that you're feeding into your platform uh, really catches the most uh, sort of you know zero day or emerging type threats that are out there right
0: Well, I think the thing that everybody who is a professional in security, whether they're a service provider or an internal security team, needs to uh, focus on and kind of come to grips with is that the threat landscape is always changing. Right. I think that's something that everyone who's worked in the industry for more than a few days can attest to because, uh, just when you think you've got a handle on everything, um, something new comes along and changes. And that's part of what makes the job interesting and exciting too, right? Because we're always learning new things. Um, but what's important is to get the best hands-on training and, and really verify that you understand how the new threat, uh, techniques work and how you detect them and kind of get the, the hands-on or eyes-on experience with dealing with those things.
1: So, I, th- I think let's, let's dive directly into that then. Uh, so, obviously, you're know, running a SOC is a lot more than you know, having having a, a a malware detection tool, you know, spit out some information and acting on it, right? You need to piece a lot of disparate information together, uh, and frankly, you need to be paying attention to uh, you know new activities by threat actors all of the time. So. If you could, you know, jump in a little bit into, you know, what does it take to put that data together uh, and and sort of what, you know, maybe what training do you do, right? Tool training and personnel training?
0: Yeah. Um, first, let me start with an analogy because I think this is a good way to kind of ground the discussion. Um, before I worked at Binary Defense, I worked for the FBI for 15 years um, I did computer crime investigation. But one of the side duties that I also performed was on the evidence response team um, responding to different types of crime scenes. And one of the types of crime scenes that the FBI is um, primary on investigating um, is uh, post-blast scene that might involve some terrorist activity. And uh, part of the training that was involved in in being ready to handle that was actually a very interesting, especially for a computer geek like me. We went out to a fire training academy where uh, we were long way from civilization, lots of safe space around. <laughs> uh, I had a little bit of PowerPoint presentation in the morning, but then the bomb technicians um, who were FBI special agents, um assembled some ieds some explosive devices and detonated them out um away from people in a safe manner uh but it was it was a real boom so in um uh cybersecurity you know we talk about uh, prevention versus detection left of boom right of boom this was a very loud audible boom that you could <laughs> kind of you know feel in your inner core um and uh, as soon as that was done uh we went out and then started collecting the pieces and reassembling what was important, and the the point of that exercise was uh, when you're in a nice classroom, you're kind of you know learning from PowerPoint, and you're you're learning the theory. It sounds really easy to put together little tiny pieces and you know figure out what the explosive device did. The the point is to gather the the relevant pieces of evidence, but when you're actually doing it hands on, it's a different matter. Um, and with some repetition, though, you get good at doing that job. The same thing is true in cybersecurity. Um, You can read blogs about new malware and new threat actor techniques and you can can say that's really interesting and, you know, uh, mean it. But unless you have some hands-on repetitions with the actual technology and seeing how it works, it is difficult to say that you really understand it or that you will recognize it when you see it in real life. So we have just like uh, the um, you know FBI training on a real range um, made use of that simulated environment. We also have a range, a cyber range, that our uh, threat researchers and our SOC analysts um, who are a little bit more advanced have access to, and and pretty much anybody within binary defense has access to. Um, uh, look at the data that we're producing in that range and the way that we go about it is we use real threat actor tools um so uh you know when uh open source uh new command and control framework came out recently called havoc it was really interesting saw that uh this was something that was freely available to anybody who wanted to download it and uh, anybody who's worked in threat intelligence for a minute knows that that that's a clear sign that uh, threat actors are going to pick it up, right? There's no uh, export restrictions. There's no control right. over it. It's it's basically just uh, free for all. And um, whatever you might think about, you know, people releasing those tools, um, it turns out it is actually really useful for defenders to have access to those things, too. So um, at the same time, the threat actors are getting it. And this is, you know, a, a very capable tool, but it's still in development, We were also downloading it, setting it up on a server so that we had a a command and control server that we controlled, um, experimenting with the different payloads. And uh, the way that we went about it was a couple of different ways. One is kind of the most obvious, which is let's just take these uh, payloads and execute them in a few different ways. In our, uh, our cyber range, in our test lab, the test lab is totally disconnected from anything else. It's its own standalone infrastructure that uses uh, VPN to kind of you know bring together different computers. But it's, it's really just set up like a small business. It's got uh, some domain controllers. Um, it's got some other uh, Linux and Windows servers. It's got a bunch of workstations. Um, we found it's actually useful to have little physical workstations. So we have mini PCs that... Um, not too expensive to run but you know they they accurately um, simulate kind of a small business environment Um, and then we use the tools in this case uh, havoc c2 to gain remote control over one of those workstations Um, we actually have email set up with uh, real email filtering um, so we can test you know what is it like to try to you know get a payload through email and uh, uh, unfortunately the, the bad news is As good as all of the email filters are, it's still always possible if you're clever to get around them to kind of think of a different way to deliver a payload. Um, So we used a a free online service to deliver the payload. We send it through email, um, simulated uh, somebody falling for it by just, you know, opening up the email and double clicking on it. Um, uh, Sometimes it's kind of fun to come up with the ruses. So we'll even, you know, go as far as like, you know, coming up with a A reason why somebody might want to click on this thing um, run it and then see what happens Um, and in our test range the nice thing is we've got it fully instrumented so we have network monitoring which is really useful we've got uh, endpoint monitoring through sysmon and edrs and we can deploy multiple technologies sometimes um, what you might call overkill for a production environment but perfect for a research environment. And then we can put the malware through its paces, um, see you know what happens when we exercise some of the functionality that threat actors might do, um, pick up on some of the signals that we would be able to see in a real-life environment. And then we can write new detections, um, queries that would let us see if this happens um, in one of our clients' environments later on.
2: Yeah, it, there's so much value that comes out of uh, that type of work, especially for a company like ours. Um, you know, not only does it help people uh, on our side that are doing the defending uh, or just you know uh, working with binary defense to understand the detections that come out of what, uh, what you've uh, created out of your intelligence, but even when we do incident response, a lot of times this will help us with things like attribution, things like developing attack timelines. If we already know how this attack is going to happen because of intelligence that comes out of... Uh, doing the malware analysis or threat hunting, that helps us so much. We we can get to the, the end point of an incident much quicker.
1: Right, Yeah. And I think, you know, what's interesting about what you outlined is sort of the difference my, – what my opinion is the difference between an analyst and a practitioner. You know, somebody – a practitioner – can look at a firewall log and and read what's there and say well you know this is what the firewall tells me where an analyst can look at data from a variety of different sources you know put it all back together reassemble it right similar to your 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 bomb analogy and then make sense of it which i think paints that bigger picture gives you clarity about the beginning of the incident and and i think frankly gives you a lot greater success at either preventing it or getting to the bottom of
0: what may have happened Yeah, I agree. You're both spot on there. Um, A a key outcome from doing this kind of research is the realization that people matter a lot. Technology is super important. You have to have the technology that supports the people and being able to do anything because we can't just, you know, natively see ones and zeros across the wire. We need tools. But the tools themselves all on all on their own are not really sufficient. You really need people on your side who understand what they're looking for, have the experience, the uh, skills and the repetitions on handling incidents um, to be able to respond appropriately.
1: I, I mean, I think it also and you can you you can correct me if you think I'm off base here. But I, I think it also makes it clear that, you know, the technology and preventative controls that we have, you know, Aren't purely reliant on AI, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it it's a component, but you need that that analyst and that sort of human review to to feed that engine and make it more reliable, which is really what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, you're spot on. I totally agree. And I think I think the right way to see it, it's not an either-or. It's not uh AI or a human analyst. The purpose of uh technology solutions, whether it uses machine learning or it uses you know, uh, other sort of heuristics, is to filter out all the obvious stuff. Take care of all the low-hanging fruit, the things that computers can take care of. Um, if you've ever stood up a web server on the internet um, and started looking at the log files, you'll notice that before you've even had a chance to post your first web page, it's already under attack, right? right. Like there's, always, there's already right. people poking, trying to find ways in, right? So it, it's really not a volume that human beings can deal with. And the point of the technology is to filter out all of that easy stuff and then give the human analyst the things that human beings are good at um, so that they have the time and the energy to to really dive into it and figure out what's going on.
2: Uh, as as you grow as a company, how hard has it been to actually grow out a team that can execute on these things? Because, you know, you, you can, you, you talk about your stock analysts and, you know, it, Positions that I don't want to say are easier to fill, but there's more people that have those capabilities. When you start getting into things like malware analysis or threat hunting or even incident response, you're looking at people with you know seasoned skills that have done this before, um, have worked with software or possibly been a developer in their past. I mean, it must be hard to find people like
0: that, right? Um, I actually want to dispel that myth. So yeah, sure, I think absolutely. I'd love uh, to hear I, that, please. <laughs> yeah, I I, I weighed in deeply to this debate on, you know, is there a cybersecurity skills gap? Is there a shortage of personnel? Um, At the same time, I'm, you know, working with uh, cyber uh, clubs at universities and people trying to get internships and really smart people, um, you know, trying to break into the industry that say it's not a skills or, you know. Uh, knowledge gap, it's crazy, difficult hiring procedures that are yeah, very difficult I'll to overcome. Yeah. So um, the way that we've approached this is actually using the same technique that we're using to do the research. So we've got this you know, research lab with all this great data from you know real life, very similar uh, to real life attacks in it. Uh, sometimes we actually do let real threat actors play in the lab. They don't know they're in a lab, um, but uh, we get some really great telemetry off of those. And we will give our candidates access to the lab because it's remote. They can they can just you know log into it in a cloud-based service. It's super easy. Um, we tell them, look, there was something that happened on this date. Um, here's kind of the starting thread to pull on. Um, go investigate and tell us what happened. And we give them a reasonable amount of time to do it. And there's online resources if they need to, you know, kind of figure out how to use the tools. And what we found is that just opening opening it up and trusting that people might be able to do this whether you're they're the typical person that you might think that you're looking for or not d- despite whatever certifications they have or don't have behind their name that doesn't always indicate the skill that they have or the ingenuity that they yeah, have. Yeah, absolutely. And the right. way that we look at it is if they do a great job, if they actually can engage with the work and they do a great job, it's worth taking a shot on them. Right. We might hire them as an intern. We might hire them full-time. But it's it becomes very obvious really quickly uh, during the training process if, if they've got what it takes or not. And we've had some absolute rock stars um, who came from uh, less traditional or, you know, Uh, roles that they might not have gotten a second look if there was a stiff uh, requirement for, you know, uh, having these certifications or having the right degree or, you know, having uh, 25 years of experience in cybersecurity before you can apply. Right. So um, I think just uh, getting it down to what is actually needed. Can they do this work? Do they have the skills? That's the best way to evaluate. And then you've got a lot more people suddenly that uh, you wouldn't have considered otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a,
2: a really great way to handle it. I think we, we've always kind of aspired to having some type, type of range like that available for for candidates that we're, we're evaluating for kind of a lot of the same uh, types of skills. So time's always been our, our enemy with that one to get that environment up and running. But, you know, I'm sure we'll talk. <laughs> right. But, but yeah. I do think well, it's
1: interesting to say, to look at candidates and say, you know, they don't have to fit, some specific rigid rubric, right? I mean, we've got we've got yep. people who come from you know an English background, you know, the English yep. literature background, who frankly are probably some of the best thinkers that we have, right? And don't have that traditional computer science and engineering you know sort of you know education. So, I mean, I think it's important to look broadly at the at the at the candidate pool
0: and look for qualities, right, rather than purely education. Yeah, absolutely, and of course, experience is the easy one, right? If somebody's got lots of experience, they've done a great job somewhere else. They're probably going to do a great job sure. for you. But if you're willing to take some chances on people and you know, giving them opportunity to succeed, I think a lot of people rise to that challenge. So you, so we we moved
1: away a little bit here from the the idea of emerging threats, and and I want to pull it back uh, because one of the reasons that we have been so happy working with Binary Defense is the quality of the the SOC, the Security Operations Center, the, you know, the folks that man that. Um, I think the the way that the data is generated that you know sort of fed you know that, that's pulled out of your tool, the vision tool, and, and then maybe into into the SIM for review. Uh, if you can spend a minute and just outline, you know, how does some of the research that you do inform you know, how your SOC behaves or maybe even how your your MDR tool uh, you know, sort of collects and alerts the analysts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, critical that we have free flowing information between all the different teams that are working on research. Um, So on a regular basis, we actually publish the results of the research that we've been doing. And that's available then to everybody else, not just in the company, but also our clients as well. We send that out on a regular basis. We have a, a Thread and Tell update every week. And then Uh, A major threat hunting review uh, that talks about all of the threat hunting research uh, once a month um, delves into the hypotheses, the source of the information, where the ideas for the hunt came from, whether that was internal or external, the process that we went through, the things that we found along the way that were relevant, and then some specific queries uh, for a number of different SIMs or um, other EDRs that could be used. And all of that can go into... Um, the uh, technology and also into the the SOC analysts' um, uh, quiver of arrows that they can draw on to um, uh, detect and combat the threats. So having all of that, I I think publishing it is really important. You can, you know, talk about it verbally, but unless you've got it written down and uh, easily searchable in electronic format, it's a lot harder to uh, make use of that. So uh, having, even though it's a lot of work, (laughs) every single time we, you know, publish one of these things, we're like, wow, that was a lot that went into this thing. (laughs) But then we get Then we get feedback from people saying, you know, I put that to work and it was actually really valuable for me. So um, that makes it all worthwhile. So
2: with so many threats out there, how how do you prioritize what you actually look
0: at in your labs? Oh, that's an excellent question, because the most valuable resource that any of us has is our time. Right. It's not unlimited. Um, We can't we can't just, you know, forego sleep and family time. We, We actually have to live, too. So. Um, there is never enough time to address all of the threats, which is why prioritization is really important. Um, The way that we look at it is um, kind of the way that a lot of businesses approach risk, which is what's the probability that we're going to see this? And then what would be the impact if we did? So, for example, um, one of the really common threats are crypto minor malware, right? Um, And so that's something that you have to address, but it's not a super high priority because right. um, in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, the end result is you've wasted some computer resources, wasted some electricity, maybe some you know cloud bill, uh, which is problematic, but not the end of the world. Um, in some cases, I do have to point this out, in some cases, uh, the crypto miner, after it's been running for a while, um, will be used to install some other malware that they right. could result right. in. You know, data theft or ransomware. So it's not a, a threat to be you know ignored, but it's still not a super high impact. However, the things that we see, like um, we understand from our research that a lot of the big ransomware incidents, the ones that are hugely impactful, um, start with a tool um, that the threat actors will use to gain um, uh, you know, uh, escalate their privileges and move from computer to computer, getting to the domain controller. And that's usually Cobalt Strike. So um, taking Cobalt Strike as the tool that we always need to uh, be aware of and, you know, look to see if threat actors are, are doing new things with Cobalt Strike, that is both extremely highly prevalent. And it's also a really big impact. So the risk is really high. So we try to just, Go based on risk, um, the uh, the probability, and the relative impact, and pick on those things that are going to be the highest impact and the most likelihood, um, or the biggest uh, likelihood of happening. Uh, we also have some clients that specifically you know, ask for things, and we've got a threat hunting service that they've got some dedicated uh, analyst hours, just working with them. So if those clients who are paying us say, you know, this is top of our mind, this is something that is the highest risk for us, then that becomes our highest priority as well. That makes sense. The, you know, the One of the things that I, I really just want
1: to highlight, and you've said it a couple of times, I just want to make sure it's really clear. I feel like we often have people who feel that these threat actors are doing something unique for every attack right or for every potential victim and and what you've mentioned more than once is they're just using tools that we all have access to and i th- i think that's really important right because it's not this black hole where we're trying to imagine what the attackers might be doing we have really good clarity and it's it's much more about how are they leveraging it or how are we seeing things develop in that space but there is some consistency and continuity over time on the on the way attacks are executed
0: there absolutely is. And let me draw back again to my experience with the FBI hunting cyber criminals. Um, when you view it from the other point of view, rather than the, the victim uh, network point of view, but you're looking at uh, what were the threat actors doing, you'll find that the way they treat their work is like a job. Um, They, they work, you know, 40, 60, sometimes 80 hours a week, Um, but they're doing the same things over and over again. They can't help it. They're human beings. They've got, they've got to have some kind of efficiency to their work. Um, It's kind of scary and a little gut wrenching to think about it, but usually each threat actor has more victims on the hook than they can deal with. So they, they have to prioritize (laughs) like, you know, which, which companies have the biggest revenue and are going to be the biggest payday for them. Um, but at the end of the day, they've got their habits, um, that they've subconsciously formed. And then in many cases, there's actually written out procedures. So some of the, you know, very prolific cyber criminal threats that, um, I got to investigate and eventually caught up with, and, I uh, got to, um, you know, sit across the table from the people that got caught, ask them questions and look at their computers. I could see like They've got a standard operating procedure of, you know, this is what you do when you get in. These are the things that you run. These are the, the the tools that you deploy. You know, here's kind of the the way to go about things. So the better you have that information and and the more you're sharing with other practitioners, other analysts about, you know, what they're seeing, I think the more it can help you recognize these tactics, techni- techniques, and procedures of the threat actors, how they operate. That makes sense. Uh, so
1: here's the here's the challenge always with with talking with you is i feel like we could we could spend an hour on here but we have yeah. a you know a 20-ish <laughs> minute podcast so uh, i think in the spirit of kind of keeping to our goal i want to try to wrap up um, i think what you've sort of spoken to today is you know a, a disciplined approach for sort of understanding you know the emerging threat and landscape and then integrating that data into the way you're uh, sort of your SOC analysts and maybe your threat hunters actually approach their work on a day-to-day basis. And again, going back to uh, the reason that we find working with binary defense, uh, you know, often so satisfying is that you are doing, you you are spending the time and in, in committing the resources to doing that, you know, the early recon type work that you need to make sure that you know, you're well positioned when an actual emergency happens. So, we certainly appreciate it. I think it's come. Loud and clear uh, to everybody listening. Uh, and as always, Randy, I, I truly appreciate your time and your willingness to jump on. And I hope that we have you again in
0: the future. Well, absolutely. And I'll say the feeling is mutual. We really like working with you, it's been a pleasure. And uh, just having people that really appreciate the threat landscape, understand what's important and what is most impactful, uh, that is uh, very refreshing.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for joining. And, and as always, we hope people got value out of the podcast and feel free to let us know if you've got any questions or if you want any follow-up. Thanks, Randy.
0: Bye-bye. We'd love to hear your feedback. Feel free to get in touch at Vancord on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Vancord Security. And remember, stay vigilant, stay resilient. This has been Cybersound.